We never do get to the point where we don't need Him, do we? Every hour of every day, no matter how long we have walked with Him, we need Him. What a wonderful place to be in need of the Savior. Good morning. We dive back into Matthew 27:11 with one word. Meanwhile. Well, you know all that's not going to stand, is it? So we got to figure out what's going on. So get your Bibles out. Matthew chapter 27. In events to us which appear to be growing ever increasingly out of control, Jesus is calm. He's kind of on this island working behind the scenes to bring this drama to a climax. He wants us to understand the how Matthew does and the why of the death of Jesus. He wants us to understand that it was no accident that Jesus died. He wants us to know that the death of Jesus, it's all part of the redemptive plan that God is working out. I can real this is this one of those where I hear the feedback only. Because it's like up here, it's, it, sometimes that happens where it's just up here. Is it this mic on? I don't know. Nope. Don't worry, it's all good. So, we're in Matthew, at the close of Matthew 26, you remember what happened, like you don't remember from six months ago what happened? At the end of Matthew 26, it's, it's uh, Peter and his denial. And he says, I never knew Jesus. And so, at, at that point, then, you expect the chronology to move forward, and it sort of does, but Matthew then reintroduces Judas. Judas? I mean, why go back to him? Well, he takes his own life in Matthew 27, and, and he moves, Matthew, instead of moving the story forward, he stores the story forward, he has a point to make. He wants to highlight, I think, the consequences of our sin. He wants to force us to look at ourselves, at our own loyalties. What would we have done? He wants to showcase the sovereignty of God. God is orchestrating all of these events together. And to the last bitter detail of the life of Jesus, he's quoting scripture, this fulfilled that. Ticking the boxes. Because if you're going to invest your life in Jesus, then he had better tick all the boxes. He better really be Messiah. And the third, I think he wants to highlight the innocence of the Savior. Who concludes that Jesus really is innocent? Judas. I have betrayed an innocent man. So as Matthew 27 opens, Jesus is on trial. He's, it's dark. It's at night. He's in the palace of Caiaphas. It says in verse 1, in early in the morning. Phase 1 and phase 2 of the Jewish trial have already occurred overnight. Between 1 and 3 a.m., since it's probably, since about 3 a.m., Jesus has been bound as a prisoner in the, in the house of Caiaphas. He's been waiting there for the sun to come up because you cannot do a legal Jewish trial if the sun's down. It has to be done in the daylight. No railroading anybody. <laughs> so once dawn occurs, there's going to be a quick little trial. They've all decided how they're going to vote. And they know that the law requires that it be happen in the daylight. So they wait till dawn and they do their thing. 
because they've decided that Jesus has to die, but the problem is Jews can't kill anybody. So they've got to find out somehow how can we carry out this plan. The Romans can. And it says in verse 1, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. No longer a what, it's a how. And they made their plans. They passed a resolution. They took a formal vote and, play, and, and appeared to be a legal trial, and their vote was against him. And so then they have to send him, because of Roman occupation, to the Roman authorities. Verse 2, so they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. They put the fate of Jesus in the hands of the Romans. And they have to come up with a death penalty-worthy uh, charge against him. I mean, you could charge him with blasphemy, claiming to be God. Do you think the Romans care? How many gods do they have? Eventually, the emperors are going to be God. So, you know, it, 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 that blasphemy, is, that's not death penalty. So they have to come up with a charge that will stick with the Romans. But let's be a little sympathetic to the Jews. I kind of get, on some level, their angst. Because they know their own history. God has judged the nation for the sin of an individual often. Exhibit A, Achan. He sinned. The people lost the next battle. And it's been that way throughout their history. They get in trouble for disobedience. Do you remember the exile? And so if they're going to get out from under Roman rule, the, the whole point is to obey God completely. And so they've set up this whole system where they don't, wanna, they don't want to disobey you know, the, the basic law. So then, well, let's go a little farther to make sure we don't get into that. And it just keeps building outward. And so from their point of view, they are protecting the nation from this pretender. The only problem is they've never really evaluated the evidence carefully. And so they valued the laws of ritual purity more than their responsibility to do justice and protect human life. And so they're going to kill to maintain the law's purity. Uh, we would never do that, would we? We don't so fall in love with our petty rules of a church that we're more concerned that we do things right there than we are for the just and for the life and death needs of the community around us. Now well, we can be like them. But Matthew moves the narrative forward after returning from this little discussion about Judas so that we understand the Jews have made their verdict and they've shuffled him off to the Romans. Verse 11. Meanwhile, there we're back to the text. We finally got there. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. As we explored this paragraph this morning, I think if we're honest, we have to conclude this paragraph really isn't as much about Jesus as it is about the governor, Pontius Pilate. Who? We, we, we haven't come across this guy yet in Matthew. So, who is Pontius Pilate? We know this much from his background. They call him the governor of Judea here in the text. It's actually, a, he's a prefect or a procurator. That means prefects came from the equestrian class, whatever that means. They were the Roman guard. They had a little bit of land. They weren't really that wealthy, but they, they were okay. They're middle class folks. 
They own a little land, and they're usually assigned to some small territory to rule it and just make sure that it doesn't get into trouble. Pilate was the fifth one of these prefects or governors to be appointed over Judea. He had been personally appointed by the emperor Tiberius in AD 26, so he's been there about seven years. He made his headquarters at Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast where Herod had built a gorgeous palace. Not a dumb move. That's a great little city. It's wonderful. But whenever the Jews had a big gathering in Jerusalem, he would make his way up to Jerusalem and just made sure everything stayed under control. His main job was to keep life under control, to collect taxes and keep the peace. That's what he had to do. In order to do that, the Romans would usually, you know, send somebody who would learn the local customs and make sure everything is, is happening that, that's, you know, manageable. But when Pilate comes to Rome, from Rome to Israel, he's a typical Roman. He knew nothing about Jewish law and customs, and he really didn't care to learn anything. And there's several very unfortunate incidents. There's bloodshed, there's harassment of the Jews, and they determined he was a heartless man. And they didn't like him, and he didn't like them. In history, he comes off a lot worse than he does in our text, which is rather striking. But it's now Passover season, and he's in Jerusalem, probably staying at Herod's palace that he built in Jerusalem. Herod Antipas is in town. Herod Antipas doesn't rule over Jerusalem. He's up north, and he rules the Galilee. But he is in town. Annas is in town, the old uh, retired high priest. Caiaphas is in town, the current high priest. And so are thousands of Jewish pilgrims who've come from all over Israel. You see, the players, they've all been assembled. The drama is about to begin. And exactly how much Pilate knew about Jesus, is, we, can't, we don't really know. But he know, we know, you know, he was a governor, and governors kind of got to know what's going on in their people. He probably knew Jesus was popular. He must have known the chief priests and the scribes had no use for him. He must have heard the rumors flying about all that he's done. I mean, a politician needs to know these kinds of things, and Pilate is a very smart politician. Next question, who is on trial? Who is on trial? You, you don't even need to come here and you know who's on trial, right? The obvious answer is Jesus. But the way Matthew tells the story, it seems to me three different people are on trial. So we'll start with the obvious. Number one, Jesus is on trial. Verse 11, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. You said it. He's been arrested sometime around midnight on Thursday. Since that time, he's been before Annas, the old retired high, high priest. He's been before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. They label him a blasphemer. Um, so then they've sent him to Pilate. And now this is where we are. Because only Pilate can really, you know, pull the trigger. The Romans followed a certain order in their trials, and Pilate seems to follow those. The judge would ask for a formal statement of the charges. Pilate got that. He would then question both the complainants and the defendants. He would uh, have witnesses come forward, give their testimony. And after hearing the testimony, he would retire, confer with the people he needed to talk to, make his decision, 
And then they carried out the decision usually right away, whatever it was. And so Pilate followed that when Jesus was brought before him. And so the record's clear. This is very early on Friday morning. And he asks, what is the charge against this man? And the Jews brought the only charge that could stick. He says he's a king. Therefore, he's a political threat to your rule and to Tiberius. Verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. As you read Matthew, you get the very distinct impression that if Jesus had just said something, he could have avoided all of this. Pilate's looking for any excuse to set him free. But Jesus has already been to Gethsemane. He has already been to that agonizing moment of prayer with the Father. And he had wrestled with the consequences. And so now he's not willing to do anything that's going to get in the way of his death. This is not a model for us to follow if we get accused unjustly. This is not, this is not the point. Jesus isn't not arguing against using counsel when you're unjustly accused. You see, the silence is what? The silence is a reflection of his commitment to die for you. He was ready to do God's will in this moment. And he wasn't going to do anything that was going to spare him from the torture and the death which he would have to endure in order to release you and me from the bondage of the condemnation of our sin. Who's on trial? Well, Jesus, of course, is on trial. But he's innocent. But there's another trial, I think. And number two, I think Pilate is on trial. At this point in the narrative, Pilate really does take center stage. He's the only one who can actually sign the death warrant for Jesus. And it seems very clear in the text he's very reluctant to do so. What do we know about Matthew? What does, he, what does Matthew tell us that, that Pilate knows? Well, first, Pilate knows the charges were bogus. He can read, he, can, he knows. Verse 18, for he, Pilate, knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. These were not honest men trying to bring charges against him. He knows it's a sham. He could see right through these Jewish leaders. But what's he going to do about it? He's got to try to get out of it somehow. So he has a, an idea. It's a long shot. It might get him you know, out of this, this hot spot that he's in. And I think it's here at this point that he sends him to Herod. doesn't mention it in Matthew's text. But he, he knows Herod's in town. Je Jesus is from Galilee. This is your business, Herod. And he sends him to Herod. Verse 15. After that, it didn't work sending him to Herod. Verse 15, now was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Messiah? You got the choice here, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Messiah. What a PR boost this normally was for the Romans. They could release somebody at, at Passover, and the, the 
probably the one thing the Romans did that the Jews liked. And you can almost see this light bulb going on in his brain when the idea hits him. You know, he could also maybe declare Jesus guilty for the record and then let him go. This could diffuse very nicely with not much trouble. There's only one hitch. The people had to agree to this. It wasn't his choice. So he offers them two men, Jesus or Jesus Barabbas. And Barabbas is a thug. In reality, Barabbas is a terrorist. That's about all you could say about him. He'd kill anybody. Didn't, wouldn't even think about it. In normal times, the Jews, you know, they wouldn't want him back out on the street. Everybody would sleep better with Barabbas behind bars. But this is a bizarre day. And the circumstances were far from ordinary. And Pilate, hoping for an easy way out, asks a very simple question. Who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? So Pilate knows the charges are bogus, and he's trying to get out of it. Second thing he knows, Pilate knows something really strange is going on here. Very strange. Verse 19, when Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. This is the only place Pilate's wife comes up in the entire New Testament. Nobody mentions this incident in any of the other Gospels. So Matthew thinks she's important to the story. History suggests that Pilate's wife was named Claudia Oprocula, though she's not named in the New Testament. And evidently, he must have discussed this case the night before with his wife. I mean, who is this strange rabbi who's running into trouble with his own people? What have they done that they didn't want to kill him? What law has he broken? But we see in this story the providence of God. First, his wife has a dream that really upset her. Second, she knew Jesus was a righteous man. Third, the message arrives at the very moment he's sitting in the judgment seat trying to make a decision. It's as if God is saying, Pilate, this is your final warning. But there's even more to think about for us. In the long hours of these trials, only one person sticks up for him. It was a woman. It was a Gentile woman. It was a pagan Gentile woman. It was the wife of the Roman governor. It was the wife of the man who answered to the emperor. Pilate knew Jesus had not committed a crime worthy of death. But like any politician, he's, he's caught between a rock and a hard place. He's going to cave into pressure from the Jewish leaders. They want him dead. His wife says he's, in, he, he's, his wife says he's innocent. And we're begging him, listen to her. He should have listened to his wife instead of the howling mob. Hello? Come on, guys. But God is in control of all sides of every situation. And Jesus will die for a, for a crime he did not commit so that we can be forgiven of crimes we did commit. Pilate knows something strange. He knows the charges are bogus. But number three, Pilate makes his cowardly decision. Verse 20, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, 
<clears throat> and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two of you, which of the, of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they said. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Well, why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Down below him, the leaders have stirred up the crowd. Just crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And this moment of his decision has come. He's got to make a decision. The people spoke, and they want the guilty man set free. They wanted Jesus to die. And you, you gotta, you gotta, he's got to be a troubled man at this point. From the vantage point of 2,000 years of history, it's hard not to feel sorry for him. He didn't ask for this. He never meant to set a murderer free. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows it. His wife's got this message from God. But the people have asked for the murder. One more time he tries, what, what shall I do then with Jesus? It's the cry I hear of a desperate man. He knows what he should do, but he is afraid to do it. In fact, if you put the gospel accounts together, it appears that he's tried four different means to try to get out of this situation. He told the Jews to, to try the case themselves. He sent the case to Herod. He tries to placate the Jews by scourging him. Well, if he's bloody, maybe that's enough. And now he tries to make a deal, but the people choose Barabbas instead. And it's precisely at this point the story really becomes rather interesting. Matthew's very clear that, that Pilate found Jesus innocent. And I think for all the pressure, Pilate would have released him with just the scourging and the beating, and that'd be done. But they try to start a riot. And the people begin to, to stir up trouble. And if there's a riot in Jerusalem, Pilate's in big trouble. The emperor Tiberius is sick and suspicious and violent. He wouldn't like receiving a bad report that during Passover there was this riot right under the nose of the governor. And if the news went back to Rome, he himself, he's got plenty of stuff in his background to cover up. He doesn't want his past coming up. And so it's kind of like blackmail by the people. You know, you, we're going to have a riot here or else. And it worked. Because if the choice is between Jesus and the Jews, Pilate would let Jesus go. But that's not exactly how it's framed. The politics of his day make it a choice between Jesus and Rome. My job or this guy. And a man will do almost anything to save his job. And so in the end, it comes down to pure self-interest. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere and that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. He never really understood who Jesus was, and he never really wanted to put him to death either. And he wasn't fooled by the Jews. And fundamentally, it comes down to this. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but only if it didn't cost him personally. He wanted to let him go, but that's going to cost me too much. And he finally gave in to the public pressure, and he sentences Jesus to die. In the final act of a tortured conscience, he takes a bowl of water, and he washes his hands. 
To a Jew who saw that, they're thinking back to Deuteronomy 21, where God laid down a ceremony in the case of an unsolved murder. You washed your hands over the neck of a heifer whose neck had been broken. And the ceremony meant, you know, he is innocent and so am I. And Pilate basically does the same thing, only there's one problem with this. Pilate is guilty. He's doing this. He's guilty of moral cowardice in a moment of crisis. He's guilty of selling out an innocent man to save his own job. He's guilty of condemning a man he knows is innocent. And so, Pilate, it won't work. Look at your hands. You crucified Jesus, and you have innocent blood on your hands. And though you live to see another day, I imagine the memory of this moment will haunt him forever. And the screams and the cries of Golgotha will ring in his ears till the day he dies. See, he has become the symbol for all the evil that was done to Jesus. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Jesus is on trial. Pilate's been on trial. But third, I think the people are on trial. When Pilate is trying to make his final plea, what happens in verse 25? All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. That is a chilling statement. And once again, Matthew's hammering home one of his major themes. Jesus is innocent. Judas said so. Pilate said so. His wife said so. But the people don't care. They want him dead. And the righteous blood, the Lamb of God, is being led to the slaughter for sins he didn't do. What's Matthew doing? Matthew is building a theology for the death of Christ. He's telling you why this all occurred. Was it an accident? No. Was it out of control, out of the plan of God? Did God surprise? No. Was it something Jesus did where he did something wrong and he accidentally fell into this situation? No, he's saying it over and over. An innocent man is about to die. And he's preparing us to understand the meaning of the death of Christ. And he's setting the stage for the horrors that are going to come in the next few verses and passages. Because Jesus is going to die. And he's washing his hands thinking innocent blood is is of a righteous man, but in reality, he couldn't escape the sense of his own responsibility, this Pilate. And what does history tell us happened to all of these people? Well, Judas, we know, died in, in an ugly suicide. The house of Annas is destroyed within decades. Caiaphas, he was deposed. He's not high priest for much more than a year after the crucifixion. Pilate, He gets banished to Gaul, where some say he committed suicide. They don't really know. And in 40 years, the Roman general Titus will lay siege to the city of Jerusalem because the people said his blood is on us and on our children. And in the historian's grim language, they will write, space was wanting for the crosses and the crosses for the bodies. They didn't have enough crosses. 
They didn't have enough space to put them up, the Romans, as they destroyed Jerusalem. The horrors of the siege of Jerusalem are unparalleled in history. And the seeds of AD 70 are sown right here. The people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And so it was. What did we learn today? Three things, I think. Three lessons for today. Number one, you will have to make your own decision for or against Jesus. See, we share common humanity with Pilate. At times, we're like him. We know the right and we choose the wrong. He had his moment in history, but you know, now we have ours. He wanted to release Jesus, but without any cost to him personally. And Pilate will forever stand as a warning against giving in to the pressure of the crowd and turning our backs on the Savior. Because what happened to him can happen to us very easily and very quickly. He's guilty of selling out an innocent man to save his job. He is guilty of condemning an innocent man to death. And he's become a symbol for all the evil that's done to the Savior. Every Sunday in churches around the world, many Christians recite the Apostles' Creed. Only three names are listed in the Apostles' Creed. Mary, Jesus, and Pilate. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And yet he knew he was innocent. He made his decision about Jesus. Have you made your decision about Jesus? What are you going to do with him? If he is the Son of God, then crown him the Lord of your life and give your heart to him. If he's a fraud, then all, by all means, let him be crucified. You see, I can't make that decision for you. Pilate tried to wash his hands, but water won't wash off that kind of blood. You cannot claim neutrality. Either you join with those who crucified him or you join with those who follow him. And Matthew's given us a whole list of checklists you can check off. Is he the Messiah? If you choose Jesus, I will say, you will never be sorry for that decision. Because it means following the truth. Because the truth is standing right before you. You've got to make your own decision. Second, God is allowing this injustice to make the unjust just. God's allowing this injustice to happen to his son to make the unjust, us, just. Do not approach the cross or Easter or the Passion Week thinking that somehow it's all just an accident, that it's all somehow a big mistake, that somehow this was something that God didn't realize was going to happen and could have been avoided and should have been avoided. No way. This was something that God had planned before the foundation of the world. Who predicted the boxes that Jesus is now ticking throughout the Gospel of Matthew? God wrote all that. Acts 2.23 says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. All of this injustice is God's plan to make the unjust just. Listen to Paul, Romans 3. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
And there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. All of this injustice to make us just. Number three. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. It is the silence in the trials that overwhelmed me this week. Had he spoken more or spoken up more, he could have lived. But he remained silent as a sheep before his shearers. And what do I learn of the Savior in this moment? He knew the horror of sin and the devastation that it brings to our lives and the devastation that it brings to creation. And then we see on full display, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as the mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. You cannot leave this story of Pilate and his wife and the crowds chanting for death without letting the love of God overwhelm your soul. It's a text like this which makes me tremble at the thought that we could ever leave our first love as they did in Ephesus. It is a text like this which makes me tremble at the thought that we could ever become lukewarm toward Jesus as they did in Laodicea. It is a text like this which makes me tremble over the thought that we could ever not run through any and every open door of ministry just to just see and that we might be unwilling to suffer as we do like they did in Philadelphia. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Let's pray. Father, just overwhelm us as we, as we deal with some very difficult texts in the coming weeks that we might allow your love to overflow our lives. That we might know how deep your love how vast beyond all measure that you would give your son and that he would willingly go to the cross that we might be free. The just for the unjust as part of the plan of God. Amen.